Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sosodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see how the goatee is coming in. Thank you. So, Thank you. With love. It, it gives me something to play with while I'm thinking for a change. To think. <laughs> um, what did I do without this? I don't know. I mean, did I just have pregnant pauses where I looked kind of silly? I, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's definitely making a difference in my thoughtfulness. So thank you for noting that. And uh, I, I'm just, Raj and I are in competition for those of you that can't see it to see who has the more full goatee. I've got a lot of catching up to do with him. He's been practicing for years. Well, today we have a very unusual guest, somebody who's going to talk to us a little bit about the, um, the startup world and how conscious capitalism plays up in the startup world. So today we have Steve Semmelsberger, the CEO of Tesleo, which is the uh, originator of the idea of network testing, which we'll get into in a little bit here. But more importantly as well, Steve has prior to this been a coach, mentor, consultant, angel investor in startups and in the technology field. And he's been a long time and a long history of being a senior executive in various different startups. In fact, um, he's one of those overnight successes that's been 20 years in the making and his tech background goes all the way back to the original internet bubble. So Steve, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Timothy and Raj. It's truly wonderful to be here. Um, and I, I like being an unusual guest that gives me lots of liberty, I think, in our conversation. Absolutely. And um, so let's jump in and maybe start to say a little bit about Teslio. Introduce us and introduce our audience to who is Teslo and what's some of the things that you're most proud about right now? Yes. So Teslio is a B2B company. So our customers are organizations and they use us to help them test their software products. So we work with large corporations like CBS and Fox and Netflix and the MBA and Microsoft. And all of them are constantly building and iterating the products that we use on websites and on our mobile phones and on our streaming devices. And in order for all of that technology to come together and work really, really well, you need a combination of software and humans working really, really hard to catch bugs and to offer ideas for improvements. So that's our, our company. Um, we're about seven years in and we bring a combination of a services team. So professional services people on the front lines working with our customers. And then we have a proprietary software platform that manages the work that we do. And then we've built a network of freelance testers, quality engineers, and test leads who operate in 156 different countries around the world. 
And they come into the work in a variety of different ways, which gives the work a lot of, we call it burstability. Just like Amazon and the cloud provides burstable computing, we actually provide burstable testing services. And so the idea of networked testing is that you use software and people highly integrated in ways that give customers a lot of flexibility around when and where and how they test. Love it. And um, I want to come back in a moment to that idea of this distributed network of, uh, of freelancers that you've got, because I think that in many ways, that's a, a new part of the gig economy and figuring out how to work in the gig economy in new ways. But just before we get there, I want to go to, you know, back to the core of conscious capitalism. Tell us a little bit about how you bring purpose to life or how you use purpose to make it matter inside a high-tech startup. Uh, so our, our company began with a, a very clear um, set of perspectives. Tesla was founded by Crystal Krustak, and she was a freelance software tester herself. So she was doing the work that our network empowers, and she felt like there was a better way to respect, empower, and compensate human beings on the front lines of testing work. And so she herself experienced this and saw it and then helped us craft a purpose that's been quite endearing and enduring, even as we've changed it a bit over the, over the ways and time. So our purpose is that we power network testing to enable human possibilities. And the human possibilities that we think of actually connect the stakeholder groups that we serve. So because we work with companies that provide software to hundreds of millions of people around the planet, and they use the software to book a trip, to communicate with loved ones, to conduct their work, to view things that they're passionate about, you know, we really think a lot about the honor that we have to test these products that they rely upon. And then our customers, our clients, our engineering and product teams, and they need to be able to sleep well at night knowing that these products will work well. So they're a critical stakeholder group for us too. Our freelance testers are probably the stakeholder group that we think of the most um, because when they are energized and happy and aligned and motivated and well-paid and are learning and rewarded and they're working on really interesting things, they do great work. And if those conditions don't hold, you know, if we think of sort of an amorphous set of you know, people in the ether, then the thing starts to fall apart. We also think a lot about our employees and the experiences that we can help them with is, um, as you know, I think Timothy, we're growing pretty quickly right now relative to the size of the company. And so we need to constantly think about how our employees connect to purpose you know, and align with things. And then finally, we think of two other stakeholder groups, our investors, the company is venture capital backed. So we need to produce returns for institutional and personal investors who've come into the business. Um, and then we've begun some social impact initiatives. So we think of communities broadly. And last year, we quietly launched a proprietary social impact um, organization effort. We call it Testlio Ignite. And so we're, we're investing even as a small company and trying to make a difference on the front lines of the world. You know, so one of your stakeholders is, of course, the shareholder. And as much as, you know, you, you know, we often in conscious capitalism talk about consciousness and things, and you mentioned the focus and emphasis on kindness. Um, I'm also really curious as to how do you balance kindness with performance? And 
how do you sort of manage the, the, the business and what are some of the performance balances or things that you do um, and how are they a little different because of the kindness? So venture capital invests for and rewards growth. I mean, boil it all down, kind of like loving your children. Venture capitalists want companies that are going to grow revenue very quickly. And so that, that's the pressure that you feel when you decide to take on venture capital. And so what we are attempting to, to do with, with Tesleo, and we are very, very lucky to have supportive and thoughtful and you know, appropriately aggressive, I think, at times, um, investors. Our, our two primary investors are Altos Ventures and Vertex Ventures. Um, we will announce a third major investor over the course of the next about month or so, who I'm very excited to unveil as well, too. Um, and, and these investors need for us to return. Their, their funds operate in a certain way and under a certain time horizon. They have limited partners who give them money to invest in others. So they, they, they need for us to produce a return. And yet what they see in our business is because it's, it's very capital efficient in the way that we've designed it. So because we have no offices, I don't have real estate charges, which oftentimes can be very expensive. Now we do things like we provide each employee with a work from home stipend. So because they need to have great broadband and some of them like really good coffee and they might need supplies, we actually just give them money that's beyond other forms of compensation every single month so that you know, they can operate from you know, places like this with a drum set behind them. Um, our investors understand, and, and not all venture capitalists who we've spoken with over the years kind of got this, but they understand that we can build a high growth business that also can be sustainable. Um, and so what we've been willing to do at different times is actually forego faster growth in order to make sure that we have the infrastructure and sustainability. So we've been profitable for 12 straight quarters measured on a net income and cash flow basis. That generally doesn't happen in the headlines of venture capital. You know, what you mostly hear about is high burn rates and burn a lot in order to fuel faster growth. And some of that is because of the human nature of the way my business is designed. So we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure and the people to do the work. Um, we tackle very large testing assignments. For example, we did the last three Super Bowls with two different media partners. Uh, we work with a top three social media network where we have testers on the ground in 65 different countries who do a combination of linguistic localization and functional testing. And in order to build for that social media company, this network of testers, we had to um, get to know 6,000 people who applied. And we ended up accepting about two and a half percent into the work. So for the media companies, we need to have people in 20 different metros on 12 different streaming devices who can do data analytics, feed, interactive feature experience, war room preparation, day of live stream quality assurance, like a lot of technical mm. stuff has to come together. And so because our business isn't pure software, it actually takes a while to get the humans and the technology right. And so we now feel like because of the hard work of the last seven or eight years that we have a defensible network of testers that you know, we can grow with. And yet, you know, we have to be cautious about um, putting too many demands on, on people and the front lines of the business and taking on too much as well, too. That's why it's a, it's a hybrid model. And so what we're fortunate to have are investors who really believe 
in a multi-dimensional business like ours, we're growing about 50% year over year revenue wise right now. Um, and we're growing about 20% per quarter right now on an employee basis. Um, and, and yet again, we've been very cash flow and net income um, positive. And so I guess at the end of the day, Timothy, it comes down to finding the right people, um, especially when you think about somebody joining your board. Um, so I got this advice early on from others that you know, the, the board company relationship, especially you know, for an early stage organization like ours, is, is so critical to get right. Um, mm. And with the new investor I alluded to earlier, who will be joining our board, um, we talked to 60 different investors um, and we quite fell for this one person. Um, and we felt, so Crystal and I did a mini roadshow and talked to a lot of people in multiple places. And we felt like, okay, if, if this one person agrees to work with us, I think we can learn a lot from them um, because it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a lot more than the money that the investor brings, you know, mm. it's their perspective, it's their style, it's what they care about. It's how they approach things. And so we have a, a great board now and we're excited to, to add more to it. So Steve, one of the challenges that I think many companies face is this kind of what I call a caste system between the executive managers, et cetera, and then the frontline workers, uh, which are often blue collar in, in traditional industries. Uh, many of them are part-time, fewer benefits, uh, less educated, etc. And in a company like yours, there's the third layer of having the uh, the uh, the gig workers, right? The uh, the part-time testers versus the 135 employees. How do you maintain a cohesive culture in which everybody feels like they matter and they are valued and they have opportunities, or it ends ends up being stratified and divided in that way? Oh, it's yeah, it's really it's really key, Raj. I think it comes from a place of deep caring. Um, I, I hold that it comes from a place of, of love and, and curiosity and commitment. And so, so Crystal, our, our founder, she spends a lot of time talking individually in small, and in small groups with, with freelancers all over the world. And, and that connection and care and desire to make things better for them really comes through. We, we set the bar very high. So we only accept about 3% of freelancers who apply to work with us. Um, with that, we also peg the market on compensation and we intentionally pay better than market. You know, so we look at 200 different countries and what QA and testing rates are. So we try to reward people. Mm. We also have a set of values and, and our values, there's six of them. And, and I'd hold that three of them are in the realm of humanity and kindness so they are foster inclusion, team is everything, and be kind. Be kind is a value of the company. And because we're competitive and aspirational, and we're in a place of um, very important delivering of results for our customers, we have three values that are, that are aspirational. And so those are challenge yourself and make an impact and give a damn. And, and so there's this sense of like, trying to be as nice and as kind and empathetic and thoughtful and really caring for one another while we're also pushing hard and working to grow. So from a full-time basis, we have um, people who are working full-time for us in 23 different countries and the entire company is distributed by design. So what we need to do is make sure that we have lots of rituals and tools and systems in place to fuel communication. So, for example, one thing that I do are listening sessions. 
you know, where I bring frontline workers from different departments for 30 minutes in and I ask them a bunch of questions and I get feedback. Now, in the old days, I would have walked around an office maybe, but now I do that on Zoom. And there are four or five other tools and rituals, maybe Timothy, as we get into the area of practices and some tips that I could offer, some things that we've implemented that are making this highly distributed, multi-geographic approach to work, um, I think go well. And, and the signals that I look to are things like our net promoter score. So um, our customers have given us a 78 net promoter score. Um, we have a 4.9 on G2. We have a 4.8 on Glassdoor right now. So, you know, it's what people are saying, but it's also then what people are willing to put in public forums, you know, that seem to rate the business is, um, is doing pretty well. Well, I, I want to, you, you anticipated where I was going to go, which is the tips on, on this idea of how to work with a quote unquote distributed network or with gig economy workers where they're part of the organization, but they're not. And, um, I, you know, what are the, the couple things that you've really learned over the last few years as you've stepped into the CE role and tried, and tried to develop this network? We talk a lot about pushing power to the edge of the network. So the more that we can do to empower people um, and, and give them guidance and clarity and context, but, but really give people a lot of autonomy over when and how they work um, in the construct of the business, we, we find has been a huge unlock. So be, because the company is global, we're divided into three major regions, Asia Pacific, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then the Americas. Um, and everybody within those regions has a bit of east-west flexibility on when and where they work, and a whole lot of north-south flexibility called the principle of verticality, and that people in the company, even our full-time workers, are encouraged to move around. Um, our founders, so Crystal is one founder, Marco is her co-founder, her husband now. They spent the last winter down in Cape Town, South Africa. They live normally in Tallinn, Estonia. Cape Town and Tallinn are exactly the same time zone. So because the rituals of the company all enable this within region set of working principles, we often refer to it as work from region. You know, some companies are trying to pursue work from anywhere. And what we found is that work from anywhere when you go too far east-west and the work becomes very, very hard to manage. So the work of Tesla flows around the world but it's intentionally aligned in some things with APAC, EMEA, and the Americas. So what we've also learned is that as you give people power and authority and responsibility, you can allow them to have a very porous and integrated approach to work and life. So we encourage people to start in the day at a certain time that makes sense, maybe spend time with their children, you know, maybe go to school and see their kids at lunch if that's what they'd like to do, go to the gym, you know, work later if that works. And so we try to give the work some time flexibility, um, but then also quite a lot of autonomy as to like when and how it actually occurs. Now that can be tricky because our customers need work often done very quickly. And so we, we manage that by oftentimes bringing large teams of people into an initiative. So the classic work, I'll get a little, little technical here. The classic world of software testing, quality assurance is you might bring two people into something and they might spend two eight hour days doing that. You know, and so you have you know, the, the work done over a multi-day, sometimes even a multi-week period of time. You know, what we might do is bring 20 people in and do the work 
overnight for what our customers experience or in a very short period of time during the day for our customers. And so we have this massive logistics challenge. You know, our head of client services spent 11 years at Federal Express because mm -hmm. we have to be able to invite freelancers in. It's an important concept too, because they are gig workers. We, we can't assign them work. We can invite them to different things and ask them to then come in and do the work that's great for them and that ultimately works well for us. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty hard to actually kind of manage the logistical piece of it as well too. And, and that leads to a competitive advantage at some point too in the fact that you've got this system that you know you can do things in 24 hours but i assume there's not a lot of others that can do it in that kind of time frame uh, or in 30 minutes or in two hours depending upon what our customers need and when they need it as it planned so when when our customers know that on monday they might want to push something into the apple store a native app they may give us a build on friday night and we have gig workers who love to work on the weekends, you know, because they want, might want to pick up two hours here, try something different. And so we can do work over the weekends with people who love doing it. Then our customers come in on Monday morning, they have issues, they have guidance, they have insights, they have different perspectives that can equip them to make a decision. That's a very planned approach. But when something breaks and the customers want to push a hot fix into production, they need us to operate very quickly. And so that's a much more ad hoc sort of on-demand approach to things. It feels like another source of competitive advantage is, is, your, is your culture, which has a lot of feminine energy in it. There's a lot of care and love and inclusiveness and flexibility and understanding people's lives and uh, prioritizing their well-being. And so I'm sure some of that comes from your founder, right? And some of that has now been ingrained into the culture. And you've got a pretty good distribution in terms of uh, the male-female ratios there, which is unusual in the industry, which, which, which then gives you a competitive edge, I believe. Yes. I, I openly talk about Crystal as our spiritual center. Um, mm -hmm. And I do see the company as having a, a lot of very powerful and beautiful feminine energy into it. Um, and, and, I, and I think that we do have you know, some more masculine energies as, as well, too. Yet a, a lot of what I do, since I didn't found the company, I, I, I came in to join Crystal. She was the founding CEO, and she's now our chief testing officer and sits on the board of directors. And so, you know, I try to hold a lot of space for her, even while I've been able to take some things off her plate. You know, mm -hmm. so she doesn't necessarily enjoy building budgets and forecasting sales and things like that. And I grew up doing those things. And so um, we've been very intentional about the partnership that she and I have, partnership that I have with Marco, her co-founder, as well as the way that we've constructed the leadership team as a whole, um, and the way that we help leaders evolve in the company. So we've, we've built a proprietary leadership development program um, that really leans into core principles of conscious capitalism and that draws on insights that I've learned from elsewhere, too. Wow, that's great. I mean, there's a couple of, there's a bunch of little things I can pull on there, but one of them I want to start with is just the, the founder to new CEO transition. I mean, that's a typical place where a lot of difficulties can occur. And you've done it in a way that also incorporates this male female energy dynamic as well. So say a little bit about what that journey has been like and, and what have been some of the, the, key things that you've done that have helped smooth that journey? 
CEO transitions, founder CEO transitions, they're, they're really hard. Um, and so um, I, I got to know Crystal and, and Marco at the moment that they launched the company. I was very fortunate. So they, they went to London um, and they advanced from London to San Francisco in a global hackathon competition. It's called Angel Hack. And they ended up winning the whole thing. And then the managing director of an accelerator here in Austin called Techstars, he spotted them and he invited them to come to Austin. You know, shortly after they just really burst the idea and I met them. I was serving as a mentor to Techstars, which is a great acceleration program. And through that, I saw Crystal's original vision and I got to understand a bit about the size of the market. And I met Marco, her, her co-founder and now husband, who's one of the most athletic human beings on the planet. Not only is a sports guy, he held the uh, one mile record for the nation of Estonia for multiple years. He's also an athletic executive, as I talk about athleticism, you know, sort of very like multi T-shaped kind of person. Um, and so I, I met them and believed in them from the beginning. Um, I put a little bit of my own money into the company and I became an advisor to the company early on. Um, so I, I helped them in the, the very you know, early days, recruiting, strategy, product market fit, things like that. And so, so then fast forward, Crystal's had her first child and she's coming back into the business and she's thinking, you know, what's my next step? She did a great job getting the company to where it was. This was 2018. And she started thinking about what do I truly enjoy doing? And so I, at the time, was ready to go back in. I decided I, I want to go back into a startup. I, I love building companies. And I'd spent five years advising, investing, consulting. I'd learned. I'd given a lot. And I was ready to go, go apply some things now and, and build again. And so Crystal and I you know, even though we were old friends, we kind of found each other at this wonderfully aligned moment. Uh, and then we spent four months before I joined, really making sure that it was right. Um, and I was introduced to the company slowly in a new way. I traveled to multiple places. I met with a lot of people. I was doing consulting work mm -hmm. for Teslio at the time as a way to see how it might feel. And then the, the day that we announced that I had joined, Crystal stood up in front of the whole company and she said, I'm stepping into a chief testing officer role. This is what I want to do. And I want you to be happy for me. And, and people adore her. So, I mean, when you hear that from your founding CEO who you adore, you're like, well, of course. So if she, if she wants this, then we'll give this guy, Steve, a chance. Um, and so it was, it was tricky in the beginning because her, her shoes are, are very big and she's a testing expert and I'm not. So I had mm -hmm. to find a way to lead the company to my strengths while also giving her and other testing experts lots of room to drive the product and our offering further along. Um, and it's been a real joy. If you're listening, Crystal, thank you for the opportunity and for your friendship and partnership. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful to hear. Now, I'm curious, you said, you know, you spent five years, you were doing all this kind of consulting and advising role, you decided it's time to come back. Um, what was different this time with that five-year sort of experience of learning and looking at multiple companies than what you'd experienced before? Because in the past, you'd been involved in senior management and tech startups and, and in the tech world. So what was really different this time after that five-year sort of learning adventure? 
what, what I can see now, Timothy, is that previously I had separated out, Raj, I'll, I'll lean into this, or my, my masculine and feminine tendencies, curiosities, interests, and areas of personal development. So I worked for some very successful measured financially technology startups. I, I went through two acquisitions. I went through two public offerings. What, what I couldn't quite see in 2013 that I think I could see better in, in 2018 was that, that the, those companies, as enormously successful as they were, weren't places where I felt fully activated, that I felt that I could bring my entire self into my work. So, you know, for example, I was, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, but I was married by the head of the Austin Zen Center a number of years ago to my amazing wife, Jody. And that piece of me, um, I, I felt like I was always insulating. You know, I'm, a, I'm an MBA, you know, so I'm, you know, I play sports. Like, so, you know, I'm, I've been blessed to have the opportunities um, as a privileged white male in an industry that has created opportunities for me. You know, but there are all these other pieces of my studies and my learnings, you know, that, um, that, I, that I didn't feel like I had an environment to really operate in. Um, further, my, my ego had gotten um, a bit out of control due to a series of, I think, personal successes. And so what also happened was I had um, two significant failures. I tried to launch companies, wasn't able to raise any money, even though I was friends with some investors who I thought would give me lots of checks and nobody wanted to fund my ideas. So that was a big um, moment for me to look at why that may have been. Um, and then I stepped into a CEO role and I wasn't successful in that role for a variety of different reasons as well too. Some of which that I think were um, me feeling threatened and trying to push too hard rather than be more adaptive to the system that I was a part of. And so, so it was this, you know, set of successes and failures, and then this journey of five years where I really decided to lean in and develop a personal purpose, you know, and learn a whole lot about how companies can be great. Um, and I was really fortunate to find my way to a company called SY Partners um, that was managed at the time by Keith Yamashita and Susan Schumann. Um, and that unlocked an incredible amount of learning for me. So that was about the time that I met Conscious Capitalism as well, too. And so this boot camp of the work of SY Partners and the application of Conscious Capitalism and maybe just getting a bit more comfortable in my own skin, being the kind of leader that I wanted to be, then led me to a point where I regained confidence and I started looking for the kind of company that I could bring my full self to. So while I'd known Tess Leo for, gosh, five years at the time that I stepped in, I actually met with 70 other companies because wow. um, I wanted to really make sure that uh, I felt that I had done my diligence. And fortunately, people were willing to talk to me, you know, but all along, I even kept coming back to Crystal and Marco and Teslio and thinking, you know, if it works out, I think this is the one that I really want to do next. And uh, I'd like to go back to your experience with uh, Techstars. I've heard about them. You tell us a little more about what they do and, and to what extent uh, do we have consciousness in, uh, in those startups or do we need to uh, emphasize that more going forward in the tech startups? So Raj, I think you would love the fundamental premise of Techstars, which is when you're at an event or in some of their offices in non-COVID times, you see hashtag give first. 
And so the way that the accelerator works is that entrepreneurs, typically two or three person startup teams come and spend 12 weeks. And a lot of the value that they receive are from a group of mentors who are donating their time. They're giving. And so there's this culture of giving, you know, as a core transaction that occurs, you know, so even as the founders graduate and they go into the world, you know, they tend to offer, you know, and, and it's hard as a young company because you need a lot of help to get a company going, you know, yet the culture of Techstars is how do you give first and how does that then give you an opportunity to build an authentic relationship, which can be multi-dynamic. And so the, the managing directors who oversee the, uh, the accelerators, Jason Seitz ran Austin. It's amazing. Um, Amos Schwartzfarb now runs Austin for Techstars. They really pour themselves into these 12-week these bootcamp programs. Um, and you can imagine there's an intensity around the basics of you know, building your product, figuring out your business model, finding a sales team if you need one, you know, determining your capital requirements. But there's a whole lot of um, work you know, around also things that are, that are deeply human. And Techstars even has an entire track for social impact and social justice oriented companies. Um, they're all meant to, to be for-profit organizations. They're capitalistic enterprises. Um, yet, yet I think the heart is there. You know, we should probably connect you, know, you and others too, because I'm, sure uh, I'm sure that there's always things that could be learned and improved um, on their side too. So let me know if you'd ever like to meet them. Oh, cool. Cool. Now, you mentioned that you guys developed a quote-unquote proprietary leadership development program for your organization. Say a little bit about the proprietary part and a little bit about the <laughs> leadership development and, and what were some of the core principles you tried to build into that program? Uh, I, I love that, Timothy. I guess it's really only proprietary um, because our head of people and culture and I co-deliver it. Mm -hmm. So we didn't hire a consulting firm to build a program for us. We didn't take anything off the shelf. What we put together um, is a 10 session initiative. Um, and the leaders, these are emerging leaders, they're frontline leaders. There's typically 12 to 15. We do this once a year. They're nominated by others in the company. And we come together and we talk about topics like storytelling and courage and growth mindsets um, and relationship development. And so the topics are out there. Many of them find their ways, I think, into the models and framework that conscious capitalism has. Um, and so, you know, we're definitely influenced and there's articles that we'll share from third parties. Um, and there are many case studies and exercises that we do. Um, but because I care so, so deeply about leadership and I benefited from the study of leadership at SY Partners, so Partners worked with some of the most amazing leaders on the planet and helps them create organizations of purpose and resilience and activates people on the front lines. I felt like I'd learned a few things that I could then apply to maybe a semi-proprietary approach. <laughs> Timothy is a better way to describe it. Uh, I love it. Um, you know, one of the things Raj and I are always interested in is the personal journey side of this. Now, you touched on a little bit from a professional point of view in terms of, you know, some successes and failures. But there's also something that we often believe is in your 
sort of personal DNA at some point, you know, the values that you have that say, this is important to me, this conscious capitalism stuff, this finding the right balance between male and female energy. The, um, and so, you know, where does that come from for you? What, what, what's the story behind Steve as a human being that got him to this place? So when I, when I, when I look back, um, I see a lot of my life is broad and an attempt to integrate lots of different things. Um, so for those who might be watching us on video, you can see drums and guitars. So I've loved music and have played quite a lot of music. And I also play sports. I was, I was a kid in high school who was kind of trying to be involved in lots of different things. And I think there's an element of, um, of what I, what I might call or think of as, as non-dual thinking or you know, a fully integrated approach towards things or, or even holding multiple truths together. Um, so my father and mother um, were very strong people in their own way. And I've learned so much from both of them. And at the same time, they were divorced. And so I had to figure out how to merge my love and respect and care for each with this notion that that relationship didn't work and what that meant for my childhood as a whole, too. Um, I've, I think, prided myself in working hard. And so some of the early success that I think fed my ego that I was talking about beforehand, you know, came a lot of times from just grinding, just like putting my shoulder into something and pushing hard wasn't the best athlete or the best drummer, but I would work pretty hard at those things and I would do okay. And so what I've had to do is find this way now to integrate the hard work when it makes sense with knowing when to let go and knowing when to not always feel like I'm swimming upstream, but sometimes I might be able to go cross current or even downstream at times as well too. So I think this this non-dual approach of trying to find and synthesize multiple truths is a key part of you know, the journey that I'm in right now as a person who just turned 50 at this point of life. Um, I also found that in my 40s, developing a personal life purpose, mm. which, which took me a while, but, but I actually, you know, I created one and it seems to hold that that's, that's helped. Um, and, and then I've had some amazing people in my, in my life too. So I've talked about Keith and Susan from, from SY Partners, um, there's a leader um, who I worked with at a company called Motive. His name is Mike Maples. He's a very successful venture capitalist now, um, brought an intellectual discipline to things um, as well as a zest for life, you know, that really impacted me. It gave me an entirely way of seeing how to be in the world. Um, and then a, a CEO who I worked under named Dave Panos um, brought a deep spiritual and heart-led perspective, um, demonstrated real care you know, in the early 2000s of the Austin enterprise software industry, when, you know, we were all wearing khaki pants and, you know, kind of the uniform. And there was this other way of being that I thought you need to have. And Dave showed me that there could be a different way. So I've really benefited from you know, incredible people in my life. And how, how do you articulate your purpose, Steve? <laughs> so my purpose is that I bring life and i know raj you like acronyms so life is like is <laughs> life is an acronym so i bring life energy to the universe because i i've tried to find a way to just boil it all down to the the one thing that i do which for me was the hardest thing about coming up with a purpose statement because i care about my health and i just sustain my energy and i care deeply about my family i have three children i've been with my wife for 22 years now 
you know, I care about my work, I care about my community. But I found that if I can intentionally bring life, which stands for loving, inspiring, flexible, and elevating. So bring loving, inspiring, flexible, elevating energy to the universe. And if I see my job as doing that, which some days when I'm tired and <laughs> a little cranky and you know, a little anxious, it's really, really hard. It's not always my natural, excuse me, state of being, um, but it's the thing that I, that, I, that I hold and that I aspire to do. Um, and I, I worked for about a year on that, on that purpose statement six years ago. Um, so, you know, it's held for a while now. Um, and, and I find also that, um, it means more to me as I continue to age, I find new layers and, and nuances. Do, do you Raj, do you have a, a yeah. personal purpose yourself? I, I do, but I just want to reiterate what he said. So it's love, inspiring, flexible, and elevating. Is that what you said? Yes, that's, that's life, L-I-F-E. Loving, inspiring, yeah. flexible, and elevated. That's beautiful. Uh, it reminds me of a vision that I got on my ayahuasca journey when I was in Ecuador a few years ago. When I, the year I turned 60, uh, you're turning 50 now. And that, that vision was the four words uh, in an acronym that was the list, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Uh, qualities we need to bring into the world in order to bring more healing. Uh, so that's, that's, that was pretty profound for me. I define my purpose as to bring heart, healing, and soul to business and leadership so we can build a better world for all. And I think that's, Love that. you know, we're mostly in the head and we're mostly in our wallets when it comes to business, but we leave out everything in between, the human being in between. And I yeah. think that's what needs to be awakened and brought in. And, and you also said you have a Buddhist kind of bent like what attracts you to that? <laughs> How does that show up in your life? Yeah, yeah we, uh, my wife, now wife and I, then fiance, we're, um, we're, we're thinking about the, the, the wedding ceremony. And so we were interviewing multiple people and I was raised Catholic and she was raised in, in multiple Christian churches. And so we were open to lots of possibilities. And, and then we met uh, Barbara Cohen, who is the then head of the Austin Zen Center, um, full robes, shave head, and drove a Mazda Miata, a red convertible Mazda Miata. And I thought, she is, she is it. Um, and we worked with her to design a ceremony that, um, that while it had some Buddhist traditions and rituals, it felt genuine to where Jody and I were at the time. Um, and so, um, you know, while I don't consider myself a Buddhist, I do try to integrate some of the things that I've learned from her and others um, and I've been reading a lot of Stoic philosophy lately as well, too. You know, it's just part of this attempt to synthesize multiple things. Um, do, you, do you have a practice too, Raj, yourself? Do you, you know, I'm trying to, I have, a presence, I have a presence practice that I use. I wouldn't say that I subscribe to any one, one tradition. I just try to borrow from everywhere. Uh, I'm trying to develop a meditation practice, or I do have a presence practice, which I can call on as needed when I feel the need to ground myself and be fully present uh, in a situation. But, and that's, that's in our Shakti leadership book, which is the masculine feminine integration. You know? so, I, I read that when it came out. I quite, quite okay. enjoyed it. Okay. Now, so how does this show up in your parenting? How do you, how do you bring this to your children? These ideas, these values. <laughs> oh, um, so my, my kids are 17, 15 and nine. I have three boys. Um, and so, uh, we, we work with each child quite differently, um, because even though they influence one another, they are dramatically different. 
in lots of ways. Um, and what they need from us is very different based on the, the stage of life that they're in. My 17-year-olds get right ahead off to university. My 15-year-old is navigating the return to school in the midst of COVID and things. Uh, my nine-year-old is trying to keep up with the, the big kids and sometimes acts like he's 15, <laughs> even though he's, he's only nine. And so um, at, at the end of the day, my, my dad was one of uh, eight brothers. Um, mm. And um, one of my favorite aunts, my Aunt Marianne, um, who came from a family of 10 herself, she said, wow. you know, we have very big families around us. Uh, these are Michigan, um, you know, German, Irish families, very big families around us. But what I've seen work is this clear demonstration that the children are loved. So all these different parenting styles and approaches and philosophies, she said, you know, this is probably 25 years ago, she told me, she's like, but it seems when the kids really know that they're loved, a lot of things have potential to work out. And so I think that's what I've tried to do the most is, um, is let my kids know that I love them. I love that. Uh, you know, you're yourself being a product of a divorced family and I was a product of a divorced family. And then I raised my children, you know, after, you know, as part, they were part of a divorce between their mother and I, and, and I couldn't agree more that that one piece of advice I have for people is if the children know they're loved, they know they're loved, that gives them a security that helps them manage through a lot of other storms that life will will throw at them. But I, I just think that's beautiful, Steve. Really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, well put, well put, Timothy. Um, and again, Aunt Marianne. Thank you, Aunt Marianne. And I think that one of the things that comes up is that you, you know, you've really built this competitive advantage around your operating system of how you operate and manage this network. And increasingly, as we you know, get into this post-COVID world where people are talking about distributed workplaces and what does that mean? Um, you know, in a sense, you're on the, the absolute cutting edge of that, of figuring out how to make that work. And, um, you know, I, so I'm wondering, like, what advice do you have to somebody who's maybe not as far along on the distributed workforce path as you are, but is starting to go down that way? You know, like, let's take a consulting firm. Let's go back. If you were to consult with a consulting firm and say, hey, we have this brand new model of distributed work. And, um, you know, what are the one or two lessons or, or critical things that you would say really make that work? What would you, what would you really highlight if you were advising someone now on setting up, let's say, a distributed network of consultants? So, so, so one thing that it's still hard and I, don't think we've we've got this you know tuned in the way that it can be it is an intentionality of human to human stuff so almost everything that i do with people in my company is scheduled so if you look at my calendar um, because a lot of my my team is east from where i am in austin texas you know my, my mornings are completely full with with meetings i, I use that time um, and, and really hold that time to be able to talk with people one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, different initiatives. Um, because what I've found is that I have to design those interactions. They don't happen naturally via a bump in in the office or an elevator mm -hmm. ride or a, hey, do you want to go out to lunch and just kind of riff and talk about these things? So we have to design the interactions and the encounters. And, and then we need to give ourselves permission to just hang out 
at the beginning of a meeting and at the end of the meeting. You know, and I grew up like you start the meeting and it's focused and it's only a good meeting if you make seven decisions, you ratify and you move forward and you end on time. Like very hard charging approach towards time together. You know, but I can't quite do that now because if I only did that, then people wouldn't get to know me. I wouldn't get to know them. They wouldn't feel this sense of latching into the company and being a part of something more. So we also, we use a variety of different tools. So one tool that we use is, use is called Donuts. And, and what Donuts does is it integrates with Slack, which a lot of companies are using today. And Donuts then, for people who opt into Donuts successes, will randomly connect two people for a 30-minute Zoom session. And so not everybody in the company participates right now. It's about 50%, which I'm quite happy with. But once a month, that's our rhythm of using donuts. Once a month, I get a donuts invitation, you know, to somebody who I may know really well, and then we hang out or to somebody who I don't know whatsoever in the company. And, and the goal of each donuts encounter is, is really personal. So we'll talk about shop a little bit, but it's really meant to be personal. Um, we also do something that we call connections. And so with connections, once a month, we, we bring, since we're still a pretty small company, 130 full-time workers, anybody who wants to come together enters a single Zoom um, environment, and then we break Zoom out into rooms, typically of three to five people. And so you show up and it's like the whole crew is there, there's a party, and then instantly you're with three other people. And we usually give people just fun topics to talk about. What was your first rock concert? Um, this last one that we did yesterday was show and tell. And so, um, you know, I have all this work stuff that people see all the time. But, um, you know, one of the things that I, that I showed was, you know, this picture of my kids, you know. And so we just try and goof around and hang out and, and really spend the time getting to know one another. Um, there's some other things that we do, too, based on the way that we communicate through weekly recaps, which is written communication, the way that we run our all hands. So for example, we rotate our all hands meetings based on time zone alignment. And so the APAC optimized all hands meeting is at 3 a.m. my time every three months. So I get up and my leaders in the uh, America's region who need to present get up because you know, we wanna make sure that the APAC team doesn't feel like, because they're the newest, um, geo for us that they that they don't feel like they're always conforming you know mm -hmm. to kind of this america europe thing you know we want to honor that we're going to conform to their ways of working in times as well too so there's about 27 other things that we try to do um have you timothy have you heard of some things that are working in the world of distributed work that you could pass on to us well i think the first thing is the intentionality of designing for a hybrid workplace. So that becomes the first thing is uh, let's accept that work is going to be hybrid and and um, and then from there start to think what are we what are the three or four biggest obstacles that we're likely to run into in our organization as we try to work in a hybrid world and then start to intentionally address those three or four things. So for example, in, in with several of my clients, the, the, the core issue is, you know, particularly women that have young children. And, you know, what does that mean for how we design right now, how we're working and what are we gonna start to offer them over the next 12, 24 months in terms of 
um, career paths or, or development paths? And, and how do we very intentionally focus on that element of our workforce? Because we realize that that's one of the groups that's going to be hardest hit in this, in this new thing. So I, I, I take that kind of approach of assume it's hybrid and now start with what are the, some of the core issues that you know you're going to run into and then intentionally design that for your organization. So that's generally the kind of advice that I've been giving. Raj, anything that you want to touch on that we haven't yet or? No, I think we've covered uh, everything that uh, it was really, it's been fascinating. It's wonderful to meet you, Steve, and learn from you. This is great. Yeah. Well, Raj, when I came to the CEO summit and listened to your opening talk, um, it really impacted me. So it's, it's a real honor for me to be with both of you. I really appreciate this opportunity to also participate in the podcast and hope it's been helpful. It's been great. Yeah. Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you to our listeners and those of you that have enjoyed this podcast on whatever channel you're listening to. Feel free to hit the subscribe button and subscribe to us or go over to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com. And on the website, you'll see a spot where you can send Raj and I a note if there's anything you'd like to give us feedback on. And Steve, if people want to connect with you or hear more about you, what is the best way of them trying to do that? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way if anybody's on LinkedIn. Um, I'm there quite frequently. Um, you can find me through Tesleo as well, too, on Tesleo.com. Great. Well, thank you, and thank you, our listeners. Till next week. <laughs>